Welcome to the PR Master Series podcast. I'm Rich Ticchetti, senior partner of the Stevens Group. The Stevens Group is sponsoring this podcast series with our partner, Compro.biz. Our guest today is Richard Levick. Richard is chairman and, and CEO of Levick, one of the country's leading crisis communications, public affairs, and public policy consultancies and communications firms. Richard is a much sought after keynote speaker, and he lectures regularly at Harvard, Stanford, and Georgetown Law Schools, and West Point. He's a widely read columnist for top business blogs, including Forbes. Richard has co-authored five books, including The Communicators, Leadership in the Age of Crisis. He holds a bachelor's degree in urban studies from Maryland University, a Master's of Science in Environmental Advocacy Communications from the University of Michigan, and a Juris Doctor from American University's Washington College of Law. In our approximately 50-minute long discussion, we covered many topics, including his views on how he defines a corporate crisis and what companies should do to properly prepare for a potentially unexpected brand-destroying situation. So without further delay, I bring you Richard Lennick. Richard, thank you for coming on the PR Master Series podcast. Rich, how are you? Thank you so much. Oh, fine, thank you. And you are welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, before we, we get into the meat of our discussion today, uh, can you please give our listeners a, a brief overview of your career and in public relations, up to the point where you you started Levick. So you're, you're talking about all that time spent with my parole officer, all of those. Extra <laughs> yeah. you want well, um, I didn't want to get into that, but we we can. I'm I'm sure that would make for interesting listening. But uh, let's leave that out for now and and, and well, just it, talk about your career in public relations. Thank you. So. You know, I would say this, that I was never drawn specifically to a communications career. I thought, you know, growing up in the, the Vietnam War era, just being 18 months too young to be drafted and having no idea uh, when the war would end, you know, if, if I would become part of that. Growing up in uh, the era of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, that uh, you grow up in this period where public service uh, and politics just seems like, particularly in Washington, D.C., where I was a kid, that this is just going to be part of my purpose, part of what I did. And I think my whole early life, working in the Ralph Nader-based network for years, doing public interest work, was what I thought my career would be. And then somewhere along the line, I think after starting my first firm a number of years ago and realizing that the commonality in law, in politics, in public affairs, and business was the communications aspect. So I, I sort of came about it backwards. And then about 21 years ago, uh, started this firm, but originally the firm was designed to be a legal communications firm just as that uh, revolution was blossoming in light of the oh. 1979 uh, Supreme Court decision, Bates v. Arizona, which prevented oh. state bars from
from prohibiting law firms from communicating. Uh, and with that, we started seeing the defense firms, and then the, they became the super defense law firms, uh, really getting into it aggressively uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, by the end of that decade, I had started this firm originally to do just that kind of communications, but that quickly transpired in the mm-hmm. early couple of years into litigation and crisis communications. Well, thank you. Um, you know, those who, uh, who who know your firm know uh, Levick as a, as a world-class public affairs and public policy consultancy and communications firm. But when when we spoke last week, uh, you were you were telling me about a new website uh, you'll be launching uh, in the near future. There, there's a plug for your new website. And, and how you have been reorganizing Levick to focus uh, more heavily on crisis communications. Now, why, why have you decided to place more emphasis on crisis communications? Well, Rich, I, I don't think it's a new emphasis on crisis. I mean, I think we've been doing that uh, almost for all of our uh, 21, 22 years in existence. But I do think it's drilling down even deeper. And I think that, uh, and thank you for the plug for the new website, but I, I, you know, I think the real focus is that as the world becomes more transparent, as we exist in this uh, digital and social media age, we're really in a revolutionary period. It's much more like uh, Thomas Jefferson's view of the world than John Adams. That is, uh, that we'd be much more of a democracy than a republic, much more direct involvement. Uh, by people. And, and if you look at all the major issues, whether it's uh, sugar or if it's GMOs or fracking or the Keystone Pipeline, virtually everything today emanates from the grassroots up as opposed to uh, K Street, Wall Street, or 10 Downing down. And if things are emanating from the grassroots, it means that intelligence has to drive everything. You have to understand where are issues coming from. And if you do really, really good research, and we're not just talking big data here, we're talking about the kind of intelligence which tells you, you know, more people in North Dakota who are involved in environmental groups are buying winter coats on Amazon. That means those protests are going to continue throughout the winter. Or look where that first tweet came from out of the Middle East, um, and why is it in English when it's coming out of the Gulf and it's clearly coming from someone uh, where English is a second language? That tells you something. And to have the experience, the knowledge, the insight, to be able to look at those trends and say that the world's about to change, that's what we're trying to communicate and articulate because the world moves far too quickly to think that we can simply respond and somehow by having the right message points or the right spokesperson that we're going to resolve this crisis situation. There is no longer time to respond, and this is new. This is for the first time in the 70-year history that we've become so comfortable with the current model uh, of communications that, that we're having to be proactive rather than reactive. And I think that's the key message. Well, there you, your, your answer leads me to um, my next question. Um, every major corporation 
um, especially those in heavily regulated industries like healthcare, energy and power generation, automotive, air transportation, and now cannabis. We'll discuss digital technology and, and, and big data, um, uh, big data gathering companies in, in more depth later. later. But the, the one thing all of these corporations have in common is by the very nature of, of the work they do and the services they provide, um, is, that, is that they're all vulnerable to and, and fraught with varying degrees of major problems on almost a daily basis. Now, in your opinion, what distinguishes a manageable problem from a crisis? Are there any particular characteristics that elevate a situation from, let's say, problem status to crisis-level proportion, such that a company would require the counsel and services of a crisis communications firm like Levick? Is it, is it simply a matter analogous, say, to the old adage about beauty, where it's difficult to define, but you know it when you see it? Well, I think actually the metaphor you're speaking about is the uh, obscenity uh, decision by the Supreme Court. We don't know it. Uh, we'll know it when we see it. And I think the same is true here. First of all, Rich, and it's a great question. There's so much to unpack there that we could probably spend the remainder of our time just trying to get at all the different issues you just raised. Let's, let's start with the first, and that is we're in the age of transparency. And so by definition, that means that more companies are going to see uh, both understood and misunderstood activities elevate to some level of crisis. Now, we exist in a period where if, if Donald Trump has taught us nothing with the bully pulpit, then one of the things, certainly one of the takeaway lessons is that we can withstand headline risk. So you'll watch how the Mueller report has gone from being issued du jour for nearly two years to almost disappearing and anticlimactic because uh, Rudy Giuliani and Attorney General Barr, Donald Trump, and others so effectively changed the conversation to be about collusion, clearly not the standard uh, during Watergate, but they changed the conversation to be uh, about collusion. And as a result, that story, I know that you, we've got other uh, periods of time where that story is going to come back in uh, to the fro, the redacted report, and then challenges to the redacted report. There will be other gating events, but they've largely turned it into a series of one-day stories which they believe they can handle, and they've done that very effectively. And I think the lesson for companies is, well, you know, if our share price goes down but we rebound two days later, that's an acceptable risk. So I think there is, there are more, uh, there's more headline risk, but it's also easier to get over headline risk because so many things happen so often. We're overwhelmed with information. We can't remember them. Twenty years ago, we used to say you get three to 5,000 messages every day. Try and remember three of them. Well, yeah. now the number of messages we get every day has got to be quadruple that number, and it's just so hard to remember anything. So I think for companies, more information is exposed, but very little of it uh, is sticky, uh, and we move past it very quickly. But, you know, that also, Rich, gets us back 
to the earlier point, which is it's so critical to anticipate, to be well-informed, to prepare uh, ahead of time so that we can make these rising issues go away either with very little negative media or none at all. All right, but um, the 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 point of 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 something becoming a crisis then if i if i'm understanding you correctly is the point at which um the problem for the for the company for a client of yours let's say is one where the audience whoever their their audiences happen to be um won't forget what they heard yesterday and just replace what they heard yesterday with what they hear today. It's something that's going to um, stay alive. It's going to be a running, a running story. It's going to hit people where they hurt. It's going to uh, expose the company to uh, changes of opinion about the company that they now realize will be unavoidable. They, they, they won't be able to, uh, expect that the story will just go away, but it'll be one that'll that, that will survive some test of time. I mean, would would that be an accurate assessment of how you might define crisis versus problem? I, I think so. I think you know when we started the firm 20 years ago, uh, very few firms said they that they do crisis. Now everyone does, and I think you know our specialty is the global, uh, multi-jurisdictional, complex matter. Uh, We represent a lot of countries, obviously a lot of global companies, uh, and it's the complexity of all those issues in which there are usually brand and financial and litigation and communications and social issues, which are often in conflict with each other. You know, AIG, the very concept of TARP, the Toxic Asset Recovery Program, for which AIG was a recipient, well, that kind of funding was per se illegal in two countries, in Singapore and Mexico. So you have, on the one hand, the demands of the U.S. federal government, which are contrary to the requirements uh, in two other jurisdictions. You have those same kinds of conflicts in the Gulf oil spill between what's good strategy and what's good communications for BP, the challenge for them, and they were not our client in the Gulf oil spill, but our uh, client of similar size was obviously following what they were doing extremely closely since they were uh, a considerable player. You you have Tony Haywood who is testifying before Congress, and uh, he is, you know, he's conflicted by the very wise advice his lawyers are giving him in terms of liability, which amounts in the billions of dollars, versus what's good PR advice which is to be more open and transparent. I think it's those kinds of very complex issues that are the kind of thing that we're regularly engaged in, and they obviously require an understanding of legal and political and communications and business uh, and the intelligence that I talked about and and, and, uh, social and digital media. It requires that kind of team approach 
which is uh, very, you know, which, which tends to be uh, complex and unique, uh, and also instantaneous. We have to have that Gene Kranz, former head of mission control, sense of go, no go. We have to make a decision before we have all the information. We're going to have to make it overnight. What do we do? And your instincts better tell you uh, the the best path, and you better be right most of the time. I think in terms of what defines a crisis, it's those things that are inconsistent with your brand. So Boeing's brand is safety. But why didn't they act after the uh, Lion Air crash, and why did they appear to be somewhat flat-footed after the Ethiopian crash? There was a canary in the coal mine. There was information. They had already had one crash. They should have been anticipating it. Their brand of safety was breached. If you take a look at Stanford University or Georgetown or other great universities caught up in the admissions scandal, they are supposed to stand for something. It's supposed to be trust and a liberal education, a liberal arts education, and the access to information. They're supposed to stand for something other than access to just the highest bidder. They are facing a systemic crisis that violates their brand. And the same is true for Fisher-Price with the long-delayed recall of their infant product. Their brand is supposed to be your your infant is safe. So your brand uh, is the thing that ultimately defines crisis. And I think here's the critical issue, and here's what's different today. Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With a Why, and we have to do that. You know, the why of a corporation used to be very simple. Up until about 15 years ago, all you had to say was, we're doing what's best for our customers or our shareholders. Mm. That's no longer true because non-shareholders have as much influence on a company, just as AIG, just as Lehman Brothers, have as much of an impact on the future of a company and its share price as the shareholders. And non-direct audiences such as if you look at United and the Dr. Dow situation when two years ago United had the Chicago Transit Authority violently remove Dr. Dow from their plane, and we all focused on the impact in the United States and the $800 million uh, of of, uh, valuation loss and fines, et cetera. But the real pain was not covered in this country, and that was the 20 million Chinese per hour who were downloading that video by Wednesday of that week. It originally occurred on Sunday, so three and a quarter days later, and China being their largest expansion market that they were focusing on for 30 years. So a crisis is when you violate your brand and too often, we don't even see it coming, and we have to remember the why. Why are we in business? And it's not just profit. Well, you, you, you mentioned earlier, and, and I happen to know this about you, and, and, and now our listeners do, that you are a lawyer by training, correct? Correct. Um, how is that – how has being a lawyer served you – now in your role as a crisis communications consultant? You know, I, I, I think that it's our experiences that are to help us. Certainly in crisis communications, and I think this is true in a lot of other areas, 
but it's certainly true in the modern era when we are required to understand and view things from multiple points of view, is that we all have to be Buddhist. And by that I mean that the Buddhists say when you're speaking with someone, focus on the center of their, their forehead. What are they thinking? And too often in a crisis, a lawyer thinks, and we've, we all, any of us who've ever done communications involving lawyers have had this experience, the lawyer views the problem as a nail because they're a hammer. And so therefore, my job is to minimize your legal liability. That is a just and purposeful role for the lawyer to play, but it is not very helpful for the for the company because the company at that moment needs a counselor not just a lawyer they need someone who understands that there may be far more at risk similarly as a communicator we cannot ignore those legal risks or the ir the investor relations risk or the social media risk if we do or say something or the risk that we're going to occur in a different country and i know you know, Rich, you know I spend half of my life on airplanes traveling all over the world, and there's different perspectives yeah. in the, the Arab Gulf than there is in Seoul, than there is in Beijing, than there is in Tokyo. And there's a different view of the world when I take the 90-minute trip between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. I, even though they're ruled by, by brothers, um, there's a different view of the world. And so we have to bring that to everything that we do because we're both trying to read the future, but we're also trying to read all the different silos. And I think if, you know, if, if your listeners take one thing away from this podcast, and this is a very, very hard thing to do for communicators, but for decades we have existed in silos. There's investor relations, there's human resources, there's, uh, uh, there's communications, there's legal, the list goes on and on, all these different silos. And we operate in these silos and only come together in a crisis. And that creates a number of problems. One, we don't know and trust each other. And when my phone rings at four in the morning, it's not Ed McMahon. You know, it's going to be a crisis somewhere in the world, and we're going to have to make decisions with too, too little information too quickly. You have to know and trust each other. Two, you know, crisis plans and checklists, all that's great, but you do not know what it's like to be in combat until you're fired upon. And the U.S. military knows that 50% of trained combatants will not shoot in a foxhole in their first firefight, 50%. And the same is true when companies are in a crisis. Most people are afraid. We see it over and over. Crises are, are when courage and leadership is required. You know, being a courageous leader when the, your share price keeps going up and up doesn't take a lot of leadership. You know, uh, to, to that point, uh, so, sorry, Rich, keep, keep, keep going. I'm sorry. I, I, I had a thought I wanted to interject, but go ahead. That's, that is when courage and leadership or the absence thereof are on display. Uh-huh. You, you, you said something before that, that was interesting. Um, you it's said that time. lots of firms are, are – well, lots of things before that were interesting, but one, one thing jumped out at me. You said that lots of – of agencies um, um, are getting into, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing you, are, get, are getting into the commun- uh, the crisis communications uh, area. Um, when, when when a company is is facing a crisis, 
for what kind of help and support services does the company tend to show up on Levick's doorstep? Oftentimes, they're international matters. They're very, very high profile. I mentioned often multi-jurisdictional, often involving litigation or regulation or public affairs. Uh, We represent a lot of foreign countries as well as companies. Um, So there's FARA disclosure requirements, that is the uh, Foreign Agency Representation Act. And, you know, that's a whole specialty. And, and, And since the last two years, uh, we've seen a lot more focus on FARA, particularly since uh, Paul Manafort and General Kelly, um, Skadden and others, where there have been challenges, some of which have resulted in criminal charges and times uh, being served uh, for, uh, in, at least in part, FARA violations. And what that means is that you have to understand when you file, whether it's FARA or LDA, Lobbying Disclosure Act, it's going to go public. And what does that mean? Well, and that means that certain nonprofits then are going to attack you uh, either from the left or right for your representation. And it means that investigative or political journalists are going to do stories. So, you know, it's a very specialized area, and you have to be comfortable with being part of the story. And your client has to be comfortable with part of the story. You know, you asked about being a lawyer. I, w- I will tell you this. When, uh, when I was in law school, I had a great First Amendment lawyer, may he rest in peace, Bert Wexler. Uh, and he asked one night about uh, about. Our, you know, our belief in the First Amendment. Of course, everyone's hand went up. But an issue that was very popular then uh, was the issue of Nazis marching in Skokie. And when it came to the First Amendment yeah. of Nazis, all of a sudden not a lot of hands went up. We tend to believe in the First Amendment when it's about things we like. We're not such big fans of it when it includes representing people whose points of view we may not support. Uh, and so knowing that you're going to be part of the story, you're going to be criticized for protecting or representing the First Amendment rights of someone or something that you may or may not believe in, but you believe in strongly in their right to communicate, requires that uh, you, know, you have a, a thicker skin because you're going to be criticized. When we, you know, it's all these years later, when we represented former Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan, who uh, as was leading up to the last election, was trying to locate and, ca- and capture back the, and release the 300 or more uh, girls had, who had been kidnapped by Boko Haram. And we, we handled that matter, and I think we're on the sides of the angels. And yet the result was that we became part of an international story. To this day, we still hear criticism for it. We had to have security personnel in our building because of the, the multitude of death threats and the attacks on social media. And you know, here we were working on behalf of trying to get these young girls freed, but the world looks a lot different to different people, and you have to be comfortable being in the firefight. You've anticipated um, my what was to be my next question, which was, and you're still free to do this if you like, um, which was to give me a, a case history of a situation where Levick was, was brought in uh, to provide strategic counsel and, and, and tactical services for a client company that was in the midst of a crisis. 
but you, you, you've just done that. Is, is there another example you, you would like to give that would be, you know, decidedly different than the one in, involving Boko Haram? Let, let, let's say, let, let me ask you the question. Uh, that, that's an extraordinary situation. It's a horrific situation. Well, I'm talking about uh, a situation that um, involves a business, a business that has a brand, a brand that many people know of. Uh, many people may own a product made by this this company. Um, something a little a little more uh, close, something closer to home. Uh, where where you were involved in a crisis that company had, uh, without naming them, if you don't want to, but what it was that um, you did, uh, both strategically and tactically, um, uh, to to help the company handle that crisis. And 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 you might, by the way, if you, if you don't mind. Um, it, it, it sounds simplistic, but I, I think it's it's worth hearing your thoughts on this to to just to differentiate between strategy and tactical uh, applications. Well, Rich, first let me say that I think I think that's a real challenge in crisis communications. Too many people are tactical, uh, and you hear the same thing regardless of the matter. Well, what are your message points? Who's your, who's your spokesperson? Who are your third parties? That's all tactical. It really requires for us to be strategic, to understand the business and the law and uh, the uh, global implications, uh, the, have some political intelligence, see where issues are going next, read the tea leaves. We should always be operating in the strategic and, and not the tactic. And I think to stay in the tactical is to stop growing. Uh, and I, and I, I think it's lazy, and I think one of the things that's so demanding but also rewarding about this job is every day, multiple times a day, you're having to deal with different issues from different parts of the world, and it requires constant growth and questioning, and uh, it, it really keeps you on your toes in terms of looking at the world from many different perspectives. To your question, let me, let me give you two examples. One, I think, where uh, we failed, and one where I think we succeeded, but in terms of uh, names that everyone will know, if you look, and, and they happen back-to-back, uh, I ended up, as a result of having those experiences back-to-back, -back, wrote one of our books about it, not about the situations, but about leadership. And that was handling AIG and then right after that, the Gulf oil spill. And, you know, AIG is the only time I actually got in uh, a shouting match with a, with a client, someone who uh, is a good friend now, but that was the question of, should AIG pay the bonuses? If you recall 10 years ago, the day that AIG paid those bonuses was right immediately after Lehman had testified and they had become the poster child for what was wrong with Wall Street. And when AIG paid those bonuses, attention immediately switched from Lehman Brothers to AIG, and it took them years to get out from underneath that. Even though they were contractually obligated to pay those bonuses, they shouldn't have, and they should have uh, either taken the legal wrath of not paying them or they should have announced it in some 
media form. Ed Liddy was the acting CEO of uh, AIG. He was an American patriot coming out of retirement to work for $1 for AIG, and he was a brilliant asset. And had he been allowed to, he said, could have said, where we don't want to pay these bonuses, but we're required by law to do it, and so we will, uh, lest we risk exposure to triple, triple damages, known as triple damages, uh, for these, uh, for, for not paying these bonuses. Well, did you, did you take on, to take, did you take a, AIG on as a client after they realized that they had made a huge mistake? We were, we were in the warm at AIG for months and months, or, or early on in the process when they knew they had a couple of mine, what they thought were significant but relatively minor issues with them all the way through uh, the crisis. And I, and I will say this, that one of the, you know, we work very closely with a couple other communications firms and PwC, Price Waterhouse, and one of the partners from PwC forgot one night because we work round the clock, and he forgot one night to take his AIG badge off when he went out to grab a sandwich for that whatever that meal is called when you miss lunch and uh, <laughs> you're going to have dinner and you're going to be up all night. But, you know, he was punched in the jaw uh, when he was on the streets of Manhattan, uh, mm -hmm. Water Street, downtown, yeah. because people were so angry. And I think yeah. we see that mm -hmm. anger now more uh, than ever before. But the AIG story is important because what it tells people is in a crisis, everything is upside down. Everything is different. Martha Stewart failed to recognize that. Fisher Price, which I mentioned earlier, failed to recognize that. Boeing tragically failed to recognize that. That everything is different in a crisis. You need to rip the Band-Aid off. You need to take corrective action as quickly as possible if, in your best estimate, this is not going to go away. Now, well, you, you, you told me last week when, when we were speaking that you um, were able to put your finger on virtually the moment when you realized that uh, Boeing had, had switched from con using lawyers as consultants to deal with a, a problem, or when you said, I think you said, when they stopped thinking like a B2B company and brought on um, crisis communications council that convinced them to start SARD, thinking they, like they a B2C SARD, company. They brought on SARD, and I think if you look at uh, the Twitter feed of the CEO, what you'll see is approximately March 26th, March 27th, you see a dramatic shift. And you see them, st they stop thinking like a business-to-business -business company and start thinking like a business-to-consumer company. And that, I think, is an important lesson for everyone out there, which is there is no longer B2B communications. We still think there is, but there's not. And the, the death of B2B communications uh, was uh, Takata, it was Foxconn, it was GSU Aza, and, and certainly Boeing. And that is, we think, because we're in a business-to-business -business uh, firm, and we know, you know, in Takata's case, all 15 of our clients, dozen or 15 of our clients, or uh, if we make the batteries for airplanes, we think we know all of our clients because we can call them in an afternoon. But, you know, the, the test here is no one was talking about Ethiopian Air after the, cr the crash. Everyone was talking about Boeing. 
the, the yes. 737 MAX 8 had become a consumer issue. Once Kayak.com, the travel website, switched from be uh, allowed people to make a decision whether or not they wanted to fly the MAX 8, they had taken all the power away from the FAA, and Boeing had spent 50 years integrating itself into the FAA and its predecessor. And they had put the decision of which plane to fly into the consumers. So companies need to recognize that even though, once again, you know the radical transformation of the marketplace, that if you, you think that you're a B2B company, that's just not going to work anymore in this environment. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you, uh, Richard, if you wouldn't mind uh, playing a, a prognosticator for me for a moment. Um, Here's my question. Um, what do you envision being the major crisis issues that are likely to befall the nascent uh, but rapidly growing cannabis industry? Well, first of all, let, before I get to cannabis, let, let me say this. A couple other uh, industries where we're going to see radical change. First of all, uh, the, the FANG, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, um, and the nascent AI companies, Uber, Lyft, um, but all those Silicon Valley companies are just in the beginning of facing regulation and disruption like only they were able to produce in the past. And you see it out of the UK, you see it out of New Zealand, uh, and you're going to see it in this presidential election cycle. Uh, they were just two years ago treated as if they were gods on Mount Olympus. Mount Rushmore bust were already being made for Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. That is no longer going to be the case. You're going to see uh, major litigation, if not regulation. What happened in New Zealand with the 50 people killed at the mosque, uh, you, you saw it in Myanmar with thousands of Rohingyas who were killed, were executed, in which the military deliberately used Facebook as a way to build up anger. You're going to see them shift from being just uh, tech companies, as Sheryl Sandberg likes to say, to being increasingly responsible for the vitriol that they carry. So I think that's one in the future. Two, uh, cyber is both more problematic and less. It's more problematic because everyone, 100% of the companies uh, in, the, in the United States are going to be hacked. Uh, a new emerging area in cyber is going to be maritime, uh, and they're ill-prepared, that industry, for dealing with that. And we have, what, 90% of consumer goods are transported at some point by maritime, so we're going to see significant changes there uh, in the coming couple of years. Uh, and, of course, AI and robotics itself, I think, are going to create huge uh, challenges. Now, I said there's a good side, an upside to cyber, which is the bad news, good news. We're so used to being hacked, it doesn't make that much news anymore. So for the individual company, it's not all that damaging. It tends to be pretty rote in terms of what you need to do. But for a population, well, that creates a huge issue. On cannabis, mm. 
I think that the companies that are going to face the most challenges are going to be those that produce edibles. Colorado is a state that has a couple more years experience than most other jurisdictions, and in the early studies that they've done, there have only been three fatalities, uh, two suicides, one murder. They were all uh, occurred under uh, edibles, uh, and the early theories about that is that when you smoke marijuana, just as when you drink a beer, you have a way to modulate. You have a sense of how high you're getting. With edibles, because the bloodstream rather than the lungs takes so much longer to have an impact, that people cannot modulate it. So I think that edibles are probably going to be on the forefront of litigation. Banking uh, remains an issue. But clearly you have seen white shoe law firms getting into cannabis uh, cannabis representation, cannabis defense. So it's increasingly accepted. I just don't think it's going to be quite uh, as uh, pure and nirvana-like an issue that we all thought it would be back when we were with Bill Clinton and not inhaling while we were smoking. Yeah. Well, you know, as one of the country's uh, keenest and, and, and wisest uh, observers of public opinion, I want to ask you some, some questions about what has argue, arguably become uh, the biggest game changer in the, in the history of public relations, at least in my opinion, anyway. Uh, needless, needless to say, I'm talking about the, digi the, the digital uh, social media revolution and the impact of big data on, to use your expression, the evolution of intelligence to inform strategy. But I want to approach this subject with you from two completely different vantage points. First, let's look at the way in which the use of digital media and big data has transformed the practice of public relations. And then I want to talk to you about an interview you did recently with Federal News Radio, where you and, and two other guests on the program talked about the debates going on in Congress about privacy and the need to regulate the tech industry without ruining it. But, but first, let, let's look at DigiTech and big data as a game changer for, B, for PR practitioners. For example, um, what are your thoughts about firms who are focusing a great deal of time and attention on developing systems to actually empirically quantify the state of public opinion and trust in the USA and, and, and overseas, and even overseas. I mean, W2O, for example, as you know, has developed what they call their relevance index. And Edelman has developed what Richard Edelman calls its trust barometer. What's driving these investments PR firms are making in big data gathering analytics and analysis well you know first let me say this i you know i i like richard edelman a lot and i really respect his insights and you know every once in a while we have the opportunity to do a few things together i think their trust index is really important 
uh, and I, I, I think their annual results are looked upon as they should be by uh, the industry, which is, uh, where are we? And tragically, the where we are is not such a good place. Uh, I would put that in my own terms to say that the, the disruption from a trust point of view that we felt, for those of us old enough, between 1968 and 1972, the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement is now, in fact, surpassed by the, in, the, in the absence of trust we have in each other and the tribalism to, I think, a place where we're approaching on the spectrum 1856 to 1864, the pre uh, and po uh, first post-year post of the uh, Civil War era, and, and, and we're clearly moving into that, and into that milieu are all the companies that all of us uh, represent, uh, and it's a, it's a huge challenge when you're doing it in the absence of trust, not just for communications professionals, but for journalists, for politicians, for lawyers, uh, and trust is a hugely important thing to lose, and uh, we... We now, I think we're past the tipping point. I think things for a while only, tragically only get worse before they get better. Uh, even in the, the Me Too movement, as critically important as the Me Too movement is, no woman should ever be in a position where she is discriminated against, let alone to uh, feel threatened in any way, uh, physically or otherwise. And yet we're not even allowed to have that conversation uh, anymore, and if the five words he made me feel uncomfortable is uttered, it shuts down conversation, the question of due process, the question of free speech, the question of prior restraint, of uh, statute of limitations, all those issues are uh, at risk, if not lost. And uh, you know, we see that, and, and not, just, not just to pick on that issue, but on so many, that we are, um, you know, our epistemology has changed. We used to gather information and reach conclusion. Now we reach conclusion first and then simply yeah. just reinforce that all the time. You know, I think the W2O, and I think another great company, W2O, is, is doing some interesting work uh, here, but, but I, you know, to me, the trust barometer is just something that, that strikes me as more valuable. But I think all of these things, wherever you are as a company on the reputation or trust, that it can be lost in a heartbeat like Boeing's was. Uh, and there is no amount of magic that any communications firm uh, crisis communications firm or otherwise can instantly do. It's going to take a long time uh, to rebuild it, and we have to understand as companies in an age of mercantile activism, which we haven't seen since 1909 and J.P. Morgan, uh, when uh, we saw the companies take take on a remarkably powerful role uh, in government. I mean, the Federal Reserve comes from, from much more from J.P. Morgan than it does from the federal government, uh, and it staved off the Great Depression by a decade. But we're seeing that now where companies, whether by choice or by force, are being forced to take on those roles, and I think that all what what, what uh, all of our these analyses are showing is that reputation gained over years can be sacrificed in moments. But it, it, it sounds to me, um, Richard, that 
the relevance index, the trust barometer, are, while clever, um, uh, are 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 not are, are more gimmickry than than actual actually substantive uh, data gathering systems that will inform communication strategies. It, it doesn't seem like you're giving much much credence to or weight to the value of the trust barometer and, and the relevance index, et cetera, or other, other such uh, devices like these, systems Rich, like I, these. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't I, no, I don't think I would say that. I, I think I'm, I'm just saying that, first of all, I think that, what is it now, almost 20 years that the trust barometer has been around, 15 years. I, anyone who has heard Richard Edelman speak, I knows how erudite, how yes. global, how thoughtful he is, and I think the trust barometer clearly has his imprimatur. No, I think just the opposite. I think it plays, both of them play incredibly important roles, and it's good that it's forcing the communications professionals to be having these kinds of sophisticated conversations. All I'm saying is that unlike a generation ago, when the tail could wag the dog, or when we could be almost invisible, that now everyone is like Richard Nixon, recorded 24-7, and that credibility gained over decades or centuries can be lost instantaneously because we are judged not by our body of work, but by a singular moment. Well, 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 lastly, lastly, Richard, um, and this goes to the second half of my uh, somewhat long-winded winded question from before, uh, can you talk a little bit about how and why the, the incessant talk uh, of regulating the technology industry, and I'm talking specifically now about companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, Apple, and others is is one of the rare bipartisan issues in Congress, and then and I wonder if you if you could talk a little bit about how the two parties differ in their approach to regulating these companies. Well, I, you know, I don't know if I can speak to how they differ in regulating companies writ large. I think that, you know, largely for the uh, Republicans, they are focusing more on uh, bias and analytic bias. Uh, and for the Democrats, they are talking more about big, as in break up these enormous companies like the railroad barons and steel barons a century before. But, but the, you know, these issues will morph, uh, and they're in their infancy right now. Only Elizabeth Warren has really given any specificity whatsoever, and that's very preliminary. So, you know, they're going to they're, they're going to change. But I think what we're seeing, or they're going to they're going to continue to evolve. I think it's probably a better phrase. But I, you know, we're already seeing in terms of uh, GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, out of the EU. We're already seeing an unintended impact, which is the number of private equity companies and the size of investment in the year since GDPR, year plus since GDPR, have dramatically declined. 
overwhelmingly decline. And who's that uh, good for? That's good for Facebook. That's good for Google. It's not good for innovation. It's not good for startups. It's harder for them to get money. It's not good for competition. So when you say, how do these break down? Well, it's one thing to say, break up the big companies. Um, but tell me how you're going to do that. There's another challenge with tech, and this is different from when we broke up uh, nearly a century ago the uh, red, net, uh, red Network and the Blue Network you know, into ABC, CBS, NBC, that name in each silo, name the competitor. If you look at Facebook, who's their competitor? There is none. If you look at Amazon, certainly in the United States, name a competitor. Walmart, but that's brick and mortar. There really is none. And Google, I mean, they own what, 85% of the search market? Yeah. What you were talking about is when you start to get into these silos, these channels, if you will, break them up into what? Because if you do, the market will rapidly, successively choose who the winner is, and a couple of years later, you'll have the same challenge. Look at what happened with Judge Green in 1984 and breaking up uh, Bell into the seven baby Bells. It took longer for them to morph into, what, two or three competitors, really? This will happen yeah. if we break up uh, the big Silicon Valley companies much more quickly, and how much pain and suffering will we cause startups? Uh, and I think the real challenge here, Rich, is the, the model. The model that we chose, which was we get, quote-unquote, free service in exchange for our data. Well, that had a very – that model of, of 20 years ago, 15 years ago in Facebook's case, has an extremely deflated valuation of our information. What happens if, in fact, we start to look at the model – much more differently and ask the question, should those companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, be paying us? Because in the aggregate, it turns yeah. out that our information is far more valuable than the free services they give us. Well, that's at least a theory at this point, one economic model, but that may be all rhetoric because it may be too late. We may have already, uh, that ship may have already sailed uh, and it may be too late. Do, you know, the New York Times just put out this extraordinary Sunday supplement about privacy, and it said, quote, it's time to panic. So it may be too late for all of this. And on that note, uh, Richard, uh, thank you for being on uh, our program today. It's, it's always a pleasure and a, and a learning experience uh, speaking with you. Um, and again, thank you very much. Rich, thank you so much. It has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank